When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. I'm Elaine Ayala, and this is Nosotros. Ramon Vasquez is the executive director of the American Indians in Texas at the Spanish Colonial Missions, a nonprofit agency founded by the Tapilam Cuauhtémoc Nation. It's a tribal community made up of the descendants of the original people of Texas, whose existence on this land can be traced for thousands of years and who were missionized by the Catholic Church. They were the state's first Catholics. The group's presence in San Antonio has grown dramatically over the last two decades, and it has established a new footprint just east of downtown and envisions a complex like Indian Park in Phoenix, Arizona. AIT and Vasquez himself have become forceful advocates for the Native American story and how that's also a San Antonio story. Thanks for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. The Tapilam Guahuiteca Nation and its nonprofit agency, the American Indians in Texas, has seen a lot of growth lately. Tell us about it. Well, definitely we've seen a lot of growth. Um, it's exciting. Um, we started um, in 2000 uh, after we had completed what the organization was um, organized for, and that was for the repatriation of the remains from Mission San Juan. Uh, when we completed that in 1999, we found ourselves, well, what do we do now? And so the year before, I was appointed the executive director. And, and I, I expressed to the tribal council that I would, if they, that I would give them 10 years of my life if they allowed me to raise money and bring a physical presence to the organization. Because prior to that, it was a paper organization, no dollars. Everything was all funded by the Tepilanquahuateca Nation, everything that was being do- that was done before. 1999, I was all by the Nation. And so they said yes, that they were okay with that. And so then we set out the journey to go ahead and start um, using the nonprofit to actually bring awareness of the American Indian contributions in San Antonio and to bring um, programming to meet some of the problems that we were facing as a community. And um, so since then, I mean, we've, we started off in a little house. We actually, we start, so our beginnings actually started at the basement of Blessed Sacrament Academy. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's where you had um, the young men's uh, group, but right? That was much later. In okay. 1990, you know, prior to that, in the early 90s, we were meeting at the basement of Blessed Sacrament Academy. Uh, 1999, 
um, we moved into a small office uh, for, with Jimenez and Associates. They provided us a little desk and a little office space. And then we got re we received our first grant for $20,000 from Tides Foundation. And uh, that actually allowed us to open up our storefront office on El Paso Street in the west side. And, uh, and that launched us. That launched us on our 22-year journey where now um, we're um, just, we're at a $2.2 million budget organization. We are in the process of owning a 12,000 square foot campus. Um, and the programmings that we're providing, uh, the, not only are we on the west side of San Antonio, but we've done, we, you know, we continue to do programming on the south side. And now we have a new location that we, re, that we feel that we'll be able to assist and support the other networks and, and partners that exist on the east side with our programs as well. So I haven't been to the new campus, although I'm going to get a tour very soon. Yeah. But tell us about it and what will be in it. So currently right now, it, it, it's, uh, it's four independent bu uh, buildings. And um, one of the buildings is pretty much admin and all the boring stuff, right? Accounting and the executive director office and boardrooms and things like that. But there is some programming that happens out of, out of the, uh, that same office, and that's our Office of Community Engagement. So that's where we do all the civic engagement work, all the community engagement work, all the work around restorative justice and the school districts. Um, and of course, this year is an election year, so we are like ramping up all the work that we're doing around voter education. Um, and then the, 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 another building actually holds our seventh generation doula birthing support services. And that's where young moms and dads who are, are on, giving birth to a, a baby um, can come and receive services, support. Um, and, you know, doula services are not cheap. And so our, our, um, our services are all free to, the, to our community members. And so they're able to come in and receive services that they normally would not be able to afford. And, you know, uh, doula is one of those services. We also give out 450,000 diapers a year. So we're one of the main contributors or distributors for the uh, Texas Diaper Bank. So in San Antonio, we distribute 450,000 diapers to uh, families. Um, and then the, the, the gem that I'm really excited about is the... the um, the American Indian Art Gallery and Archives. And that's just, it's the first ever. So San Antonio's never had an American Indian Center. I think they had one early in the years, but it didn't last very long. But um, this definitely is one of a first for the city. And of course, the, it's never had an American Indian Art Gallery. And, um, and so we'll Congratulations, be yeah. that's wonderful. What do you hope will happen in this space? How do you envision it in the future? Well, I think we're going to be, um, well, in the future, I think that we'll move all our administrative offices out of there and we'll move all of our programming out of there into a new space. And this campus will be just the cultural and archive center. So it'll, um, hopefully it'll um, be a place where the city visitors to San Antonio, as well as residents can come and experience a one-stop one shop, Guahuitecan shop, right? Where, the, mm -hmm. where, where you can go and find the, the information of the first people of this area, as well as the information about the new arrivals, because San Antonio is the 10th largest city in the United States per capita with an American Indian population, and it's growing. So we're finding other tribal people making San Antonio their home. And so we, we think that this place will be a, a facility where they can see their own history. 
and their contributions from their people to the state of Texas, to San Antonio, uh, as alongside of the Aboriginal people who built this, the missions and, and provided the, the opportunity for the settlers to actually, you know, um, settle in San Antonio. So. It's interesting that um, other places where a Native American population is very visible, mm-hmm. and I know you talk about how urban Indians are invisible mm-hmm. in many cities, including our own. Right. This will make them more visible. Sure. And I wonder if there's a um, a center that you're going to model yourself after. I'm sure you've been to several across the country, mm-hmm. or if you see it differently. Yeah, no, actually— um so the city that we're very comparable to is Phoenix, Arizona. So we have just we have pretty pretty much the same amount of population per capita as Phoenix, and uh, and similar histories, right? Where the original people, the Aboriginal people, no longer actually act, uh, live on the on the land that they that they were originally from, but that have other tribal people living there. But there there's a place called um, Indian Park. In Phoenix. Right downtown. And it was a collaboration between the tribal communities, the 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 um, urban Indian centers, and tribal communities, and other local governments that um, created this 100 acres uh, called Indian Park. And it used to be the site of of the boarding school. So they've transitioned it into a museum. Uh, they can come, there's uh, social service agencies on the park. Um, there's food vendors on the park, all native based, and um, it's just a great place to see. You know that that um, that this could happen in the middle of a metropolitan area. Well, congratulations on that. It sounds fabulous, and I can't wait to go visit. Um, you did mention at the top um, how Tapilam was organized in part for the repatriation of human remains, mm-hmm. native human remains at one of the missions, San Juan. And uh, every time I go to San Juan, I look at that spot yeah. where there's no marker and no way to tell that um, indeed. Well, I can tell, yeah. <laughs> but um, but there's nothing there to mark that site. But I, I wonder if you would give us a schooling of that um, issue, the reburial of human remains, and why that not only became your starting point as a nation, but also is a national issue of importance to all Native Americans. Sure. Um, well, you know, as a people, you never plan on reburying your people. As a, When you put your family to rest and they depart this place, you never think of somebody digging them up. And that's something that the Native American families have experienced across this country. Like over no, and over and over yeah, again, like no other cult, like no other grouping of people, um, and it's and in, in times it's very intentional, and that was that's what happened in the 1960s. Um, the archdiocese, Bishop Lucy at the time, gave permission to the state of Texas to dig up the Campo Santo at uh, Mission San Juan, and I, I, I need to say that every single mission, all five of the missions that we have, each one of them has a cemetery. That's what Campo Santo means. Yeah, the holy ground, right? Sacred ground. Um, and so each one of them has a cemetery. 
and according to the archdiocese, none of them have been desanctified. They've been moved, or the headstones have been moved, but they've never been desanctified. That's why every time you put a spade in the ground, pretty much in anywhere downtown San Antonio or around the missions, you encounter human remains. And so this is what happened in the 60s. So while many of our men were in Vietnam, back home our families were fighting the excavation and um, the disturbance of the graves at San, Mission San Juan. UTSA then took those remains and uh, sent, they were sent out across the country uh, for study, they said. And so in 1999, uh, well, in, in the 80s, um, the families started coming together to inquire about these human remains. They started um, dealing with the, the, the archdiocese, and pretty much the archdiocese said, look, there's too many families to deal with, uh, but if there's one group that, is there, an, is there an umbrella that can speak for all of these groups, then we'll, we would prefer to do that. If not, until then, we'll work with the individuals. And that's when they formed the American Indians in Texas, the Spanish Colonial Missions. And so in 1999, we were successful, and we, we, um, we, they, the Archdiocese uh, returned 150 human remains that we were able to repatriate back at Mission San Juan. But throughout that process, there were others, right? In, the ni- in 1994, during the Alamo Plaza uh, commi- um, study, um, our people were telling them that there's cemeteries here, and it, you know, th- nobody would believe us. Or nobody really, you know. Uh, well, they didn't want to yeah, believe. Well, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, and on like the last day of the of, of a project that was going on, one of the walls collapsed, and and, and um, human remains were exposed. And so our people were called in to um, to kind of to do a ceremony, uh, a forgiveness ceremony back then, and um, and we, we they were reinterred right there where they were. Um, it. 2013, the Archdiocese, you know, uncovered another 15 human remains at San Juan during the renovation project to stabilize the wall. Uh, That time, we didn't have to fight, so they called us in right away. They called us in right away. They turned them over to us right away, and we worked with them and the national parks to reinter them in 2013. They were mostly children. Mostly of those 15 were all children. And, uh, and the, the problem was is that many of the families, so this, the last burial that took place at that site was about 1867, 1860s, and then they, then they started moving uh, across the street, the cemetery across the street. So we figured 100 years later in 1967, only 100 years had passed. There were still people that were connected to, some, to the people. So we're not talking about Indian um, human remains that were found in some remote area. They weren't ancient. They weren't ancient, right? And um, and so, you know, unfortunately, you, we thought that that was over. But in uh, 19, um, 2018, we received information from UC, UC Davis that they had another 26 human remains that they found in a closet and uh, that were from Mission San Juan. And you can imagine, we thought it was, we thought that it was over. We thought that all the remains had been given to us, but they weren't. So, you know, I want to backtrack here a little bit so that listeners will understand why um, this group is so connected, because so many of um, the members of Tapilam, Guahuiteca Nation, are direct descendants of the uh, mission inhabitants who who built the missions. They built 
the missions right. that are now a world heritage That's site. Correct. And so um, many of the families are still connected and can trace yeah. their heritage. Yeah. And we also have a different history than the rest of American Indian people across the country. Um, we have a connection. Uh, we, we were missionized, right? Our, many of our people were missionized, which means that uh, they traded one form of government, a tribal government, to another that was embedded in the church and in the clergy. And so the people that were buried in these Campos Santos were very intentional. These were Catholic cemeteries. They were all baptized Catholics. They were all... Um, that's why the records are so good. That's correct, right? So they weren't just, like I said, they weren't just American, you know, remains of, of American Indian, of an ancient people. These were, la they were given their last rights as Catholics. And so that makes they it even more. They were the first yeah, Catholics exactly. of the state. Yeah, and, that, and that's what made it more of an injustice, because they were, you know, it was a, a known cemetery, Catholic burials, and it was allowed to happen. And I had to travel to UC Davis to go pick up 26 human remains with the director of the Center for Archaeological Research. And um, when to reunite them with the other remains that were in, uh, on, on hold at, at, the, at CAR. And, and CAR is? The Center for Archaeological Research for UTSA here in San Antonio. And when when we when we saw the reunification, it's just horrible. I mean, yes, we we were glad that they were reunified, but the treatment of the remains is um, well. Know, I think we need to go into problem. that because I think a lot of uh, people in the United States have no idea how human remains of Native Americans have been treated over centuries. Um, and um, up until recently, so many, and still today, so many institutions like the Smithsonian, um, uh, other institutions like CAR, have held these remains basically in boxes. And, um, and so many questions um, remain about what they were being studied for or if they were studied. Talk about that a little well, bit. Well, yeah, but for, first I want to say that... It, it, um, the treatment of them has become a little bit better since we've been on the scene, right? Um, but it has taken years of education and, and hard work and sometimes, um, you know, fighting, right? Uh, but, you know, I, it's, um, I, for us, it's very difficult because how many human remains is enough? There are thousands and thousands and thousands in, in, in being held. And are there any being held in San Antonio still? Yeah, yeah, there, there are. Where? And, uh, well, I think there's, um, um, well, CAR, you know. Um, the University yeah, of, San, yeah, of Texas at San Antonio's yeah. Center for Archaeological, Archaeological Research. Research. Yeah, and, um, and the Witte Museum. And um, the Texas Archaeological Research Laboratory in Austin, and I will say though that um, we've been in constant communication, and they've all been very—they're um, all working through this, right? So uh, we're very pleased. They're working through getting them repatriated. Yeah. yeah and it's, is there some difficulty in well, figuring it, out it, who? There is. Yeah, there is a difficulty because. Um, there is another. There's a couple. There are a few level levels of um, of interest that are that have been in, uh, imposed by the federal government. So other federally recognized tribes, 
right, have um, have to have a say in in um, in what they call the NAGPRA related um, cases. NAGPRA, NAGPRA is, stands for the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. It's a right? federal it's law. It's a federal law. That's correct. And so you have culturally identified human remains, which are you uh, you know where they're from. Right. And then you have culturally unidentified human remains, which you know where they're from, but there are no federally recognized tribes attached to that grouping. So the the majority of in Texas are considered culturally unidentified because they predate all the federally recognized tribes um, interest in Texas. Okay. They predate. Right. That so means for, that there are no descendants. So, for example, the Alabama Cushada, right, or the uh, other tribal communities that, that reside in Texas, they were relocated here. So they have no historical ties to um, archaic human remains or uh, human remains that uh, predate um 1780s. But they're a federally recognized tribe. Right. And so by law, they have to be consulted with as well. Yes. So so the struggle is that uh, because there's this rift uh, between federally recognized tribal communities and non-federally recognized tribal communities. So, for example, there are 550, roughly around 550 uh, federally recognized tribes in the United States. And there are a couple thousand non-federally recognized in the United States. And so um, you can imagine- There's a whole lot of politics in that. You know, we're we're politicized people and, um, you know, but we're also functioning under very antiquated systems. And you mean the federal system? The federal systems, you know, when it comes to American Indian policy, right? Which promotes discriminatory practices amongst ourselves. Where I'm more Indian than you, <laughs> you know, because the card makes me more of an Indian than you. Yes. And so that's where they Because membership in one is regarded sure. as the ultimate identification. Sure, sure. But, but it's also a conditioning. So it's not, it's not something that we like fault our people for across this nation, you know, for the, their behaviors. Uh, the older ones, they knew better. The younger ones, well, um, they need a, a little bit more lessons, you know, in in um, in in our in our history, right? Too, but you know, so we don't blame them. It's a, you know, it's a conditioning. It's a conditioning that um, we fall uh, victims of without even knowing it. And I'll give you an example. One of our elders went to a conference, a native a NAGPRA conference in Oklahoma in 1997, I'm sorry, 1995, to fight for our rights as Aboriginal people of San Antonio to protect the rights of our cemeteries and our camposantos and our human remains. Um, and uh, an American Indian gentleman there at the, at the conference, um, uh, our elder introduced himself, right? And he's, I'm Raymond Hernandez. And um, from San Antonio, Mission Indian from San Antonio. And um, the, the gentleman, the other gentleman says, oh, you must be one of those Mexican Indians. Mm-hmm. And Raymond asked, you know, to, asked him, why would you say that? What do you mean by Mexican Indian? He goes, well, you, you have a Mexican last name, so you must be one of those Mexican Indians. 
And so Raymond turned around and told him and says, well, then you must be one of those white Indians because your last name is Jackson. <laughs> so, you know, the perplexed look on his face, according to Raymond, was like, what? Oh, I get it. So it did take that in exchange to help that gentleman understand that what he just said was pretty much borderland racist, prejudiced. Yeah. And against it's a, it's a, a point of view, it's a perspective that gets um, challenged yeah. in these interactions. Yeah. And so, you know, for others, for our brothers and sisters, you know, in the United States and in Canada and in Mexico, that this is this continent is the American continent. And so uh, our our Aboriginal people from the tip of this continent to from one tip to the other those Aboriginal people, you know, um, are not defined by political boundaries. Their history is not defined by political boundaries. We're, those are new to people today. That's what we know, right? I mean, so, I mean, of course, we love the United States, you know, um, but the, the systems. And, and so many of you have served in the military. Sure, I mean. You can see it at so, every powwow. Well, so many of our people have served in every conflict. And so our people, there's no doubt, you know, that they... Um, honor and pride in this country. But we also are real. We also understand that we live in a country that the only, it's the only country that doesn't have a name. We have a condition and that's where we live in. And so if we can understand that, that we are living in a, in an environment that's, that is known by its condition, the United States, then we maybe we can learn to treat people a little bit differently, you know, when we, you know, in terms of our different cultures. You know, our people, like American Indian people, the indigenous people, Aboriginal people, you know, they, if you give us a chance, you know, looking at our history, we know what it's like to go from a monocultural society to a bicultural society living in a very multicultural society. And we, we have the historical experience to adapt to these situations. And I think that um, if we were able to unite our, our indigenous people across this continent, you know, and learn from those teachings of adaptability, then maybe we'll have less... Um, um, problems getting along, you know, I think internal, I, it's sure. internal. I mean, it, it is because we perpetuate the same behaviors over and over again, even if we, without knowing we, we do it. One of the things you brought up is, uh, Mr. Hernandez's, um, uh, confrontation with a native, another native American. And, um, the, the, um, situation, the, um, the identity crisis, really, sure. of um, Mexican Americans who are also mm -hmm. Native American. And I remember, I'm Mexican American. Mm -hmm. That's how I define myself, mm -hmm. Chicana, Tejana. And I recall reading in a Native newspaper, mm -hmm. I think it was Indian Country, mm -hmm. and um, there was a story, it was a census story uh, that was shoring up all the the Native American population. Right. And it said that the largest 
tribal group in the United States that's native is the Mexican-American population. And it blew me over because I think there's a there are a lot of Mexican-Americans in San Antonio, especially who identify and more and more are self-identifying, at least on the census, Mm -hmm. as Native American as well as Mexican-American. Talk about that. This is a, um, I think it's- Mic drop. Yeah, what do you think about that? Yes, it is a mic drop. Yeah, so if you use the same principles that the the country has been using to identify American Indian communities, then obviously the Mexican-American community is way up, high up in those numbers. If you use the, if you'd apply the same principles, I think where people make the mistake is that we're we're confusing race and ethnicity and nationalism, right? So um, the race Mexican American is not a race. The race is American Indian because the the categories of race that we have are white, black. American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Asian. Those are the five primary races that the unit that we use, you know, to to ca- categorize people. And we've wrongly self-identified as white. Well, not I wouldn't say self-identified, but it's been imposed. It was an, imp- an imposition right on our people when it was automatically put as white on our birth certificates, and this had been going on for decades. Of course, right? So. You know, when you start thinking um, about the amount of blood um, in in our systems, you know, the majority of Mexican-American people have indigenous blood from someplace, whether it's from South Texas, northeastern Mexico, if they're primarily in San Antonio, or if they've uh, come in um, more recently, uh, they're still going to have indigenous blood, you know, because of Central America, Central Mexico or the in the interior of Mexico. Because of our history, of the occupation of our people. So no matter if you start breaking down the DNA, you still see, you find Mexican-Americans with percentages like 40% American Indian. It's still the largest amount of percentage of a race in that, because even your, your Spanish um or Portuguese bloodline that may be found in your DNA, even that is broken up into subcategories. That's right. So if you, so the- uh, So the the definition uh, or self-definition or one that was imposed on Mexican-American people um, was indeed white because of our European connection. And that's there too. Well, yeah, but you didn't have a choice. What's happening right now is people are making a choice. People are taking something back. They are reclaiming their indigeneity. They are reclaiming their identity, where before they didn't have a choice. And so think about the many generations of grandparents that grew up with that. No, it is Blanco. It is white, 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 white. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, we can't fault our grandparents for the decisions that they made. But, you know, I think when we're in a point in our history and I've said this plenty of times, and you know, there's, there aren't, we've never had as many educated people in the history of the world as we do today. And if we can't get, and we have so, and we know so many untruths today, 
And if we can't do anything with all this education and intelligence to change the direction of the future in regards to these myths and falsehoods, then we, we, we will lost a great opportunity to uh, influence our the next generations. And, and we think like that, right? We have to start thinking generational because if we don't, um, we're going to continue to perpetuate the same behaviors, the same discriminatory practices that we, that self, that we, that we uh, impose on our own kids, you know, as Mexican Americans, I mean, we do it today. Uh, the darker this, this, the, the child is, the less attention the child gets, right? And what people don't understand is that only people of color can create shades of color. White people cannot create shades of white, but people of color can create shades of color. And, and I, all of us have heard our mothers and grandmothers, and this is shameful, but it's true, um, you know, stay out of the sun. Sure. You're going to get too dark this summer or, oh, God, I just spent too much time. Even though the great majority of people are spending their summers trying to get, to get tanned. Tan, yeah. It's the mo it's the sure. irony of ironies sure. um, that um, that there's this self-inflicted mm -hmm. racism yeah. among um, groups of brown people. Yeah. And I know black people. People deal with this too in their in their uh, subcultures and sure. their um, churches and their and and it's um, it's something that we must come to terms with. Well, I think I think it's um, I think it's across all Aboriginal people across the world, right? That were influenced by European society, and I think people. The Aborigines suffer from that in Australia. Oh, definitely. So, so the passing that yeah, goes on, yeah. and that's that lighter, um, lighter skinned people in a subgroup yeah. um, have passed, and there's now movies and books about well, this in the black community and in other communities. Look at also. our novellas. I mm -hmm. mean, to this day, to this day, the novellas still perpetuate the same stereotypes. You know, the darker ones are um, the gardeners. The maids the and the, light, the servants and the lighter skinned ones are the, you know, the um, patrona, the, the, you know, the people. The owners. Yeah, all that. Um, it's a it's a never ending story. And all we can do is keep talking about it and keep um, telling yeah. the uh, new stories. Yeah. Um, one of the old stories, however, and, and we're getting back to reburials here, is um, the reburials uh, that happened at Krista Santa Rosa Hospital yeah. and um, and more recently uh, those that happened at the Alamo as it um, at it as it continues its controversial um, um, uh, renovations and rebranding. So, get us uh, take on first the um, the ones at Christus, um, and what update us on what's happening there. Well, no, so um, so Christus Center was a great example of how working with the community, you know, could um, could overcome, you know, um, inherited problems because they obviously didn't create the problems. Uh, at the Christa um, Hospital, but once they discovered, you know, the the situation, they acted quickly. The human and, remains, and, and and I can't remember now how many human so remains. It was Twelve, mm -hmm. twelve were uncovered, 
Um, and obviously it was a cemetery, a very large cemetery for the city. And um, it was the major cemetery. Well, uh, but the deception was when everybody thought the remains had been relocated in the 20s. But the, we believe that only the headstones were removed because there was no way that you could remove 3,000 human remains uh, in, in the short period of time that they had in the 20s. And, and relocate them to San Fernando number one. And and San Fernando number one is such a small place. Yeah. And the 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 hospital grew to be a humongous structure. Yeah. Right. And so because of the service that the hospital provides our city, I mean, we knew that uh, when this, when this happened, we want to you know shut them down. I mean, they're not the bad guys. You know, unfortunately, um, they just inherited a situation. And the nuns. Um, the Sisters the, of the Charity the, of the Incarnate yeah, Word were were such a blessing to the whole situation. I mean, the administration was like, "Well, you know, this is this they're hard being hard pressing," and the the sisters came in there and said, "No, you know what? We're going to stop and we're going to we're going to listen," and they did. And um, an excellent example of cooperation. Yeah, and that was a thirty five million dollar project. Right, that was that was for one. a spiritual garden, as yeah, I recall. A prayer garden. <laughs> a prayer garden. And so, you know, I mean, so it, you know, their project continues. They're still working on it, and yeah, they've you know they've run into situations, you know, a few times, but they're being a lot more careful and intentional about what they're, where they're doing things at. Right, so it's great. Um, I would say with the Alamo, the same thing. You know, I think now um, they're being very intentional, very um, cooperative with, with, um, with community members in regards to looking at, you know, the issue of, of human remains in the cemetery that you can't get away from. And none of the missions you can get away from this, right? They, they are all cemeteries. You know, the, the, the problem is the Catholic Church hasn't, um, hasn't stepped in. I had a conversation with the federal officer from NAGPRA right, some time back. And uh, what she said to me was, you know, Ramon, the issue in San Antonio shouldn't be that complex when it comes to the issue of human remains. American They're all Catholic. Human. Right. And what she basically said was the authority, the body that has the authority is not involved in the conversation. The Archdiocese of and San Antonio. the Archdiocese of San Antonio. They are, um, these, all the, all the five missions have cemeteries. I have a letter from the Archdiocese that says that uh, none of the cemeteries have been desanctified. I have a letter from the Archbishop Flores from the 90s that says that all the human remains, all the human remains associated to the missions of San Antonio are, the, are under the authority of the Archdiocese only. Not NAGPRA, not anybody else, but they are under the authority of the archdiocese. So our question still has been, is that true? What Archbishop Flores, Patrick Flores. Does it still hold? Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a conversation with um, the new archbishop, no, the current archbishop? No, we haven't. We, we started to uh, going through the proper chains of channels of, of command that they've uh, given to us, but then they kind of stopped. Um, so 
we hope to. I mean, that that is definitely uh, a conversation that we'd love to have um, because I think he understands. I think he, I think it's very hot right now. The whole issue across, you know, in San Antonio and across the state of Texas, but. I think the issue of the Catholic Church in regards to our dead, you know, I think they need to give us, be a little bit more vocal about the, the, the church's role, especially when the city is making so much money, not just the city, but others, you know, on the Dia de los Muertos and Mission things like Heritage that. Mission Heritage and all that stuff, right? Um, I think the church should weigh in, you know, and... It does have authority over the cemeteries. So the last archbishop that did weigh in on this issue was Flores? That's correct. And he apologized. In 1999, Archbishop Flores apologized publicly to for all the, um, uh, for what happened at all the missions and all the people, right? And um, and so we, we have those letters. And of course, in 2000, uh, under, his, under his leadership, he um, passed a resolution through the, he signed a resolution through the Archdiocese of San Antonio recognizing Tepilam as the first Catholics and the, you know, the first people of this area and, you know, and um, the the issue of the human remains. And um, so we don't even know, we've asked the Catholic Church, you know, is this viable? I mean, does this mean anything? But we haven't heard anything. We, you know, we've done it through the chain of command. So it's kind of just stopped. One of the issues, and we'll end with with this, Ramon, one of the issues that I think San Antonians are always sort of surprised to learn if they've never heard it is how long uh, Native American people have been in this place we now call San Antonio yeah. and how um, incredible some of the digging that has happened. I, I especially think of the old Apple White oh, yeah. project, reservoir project yeah. on the south side where these beaut it could have been a huge body of water and thank goodness it was yeah. saved. But tell people about how long Native Americans have been here well, prior know, to the Spanish yeah, or any other well, survival. You know, I think what we're seeing here is what our, as science is telling us through archaeology is that anywhere between twelve and 15,000 years, even some pushing it as far as 20,000, right? Uh, myself, I, uh, during the Applewhite project, um, I found a, um, a, a, a bone, a very huge bone, and I turned over to A&M, and A&M determined that it was the center of a tibia of a mammoth that had been cut and worked for tools, right? So you think about uh, where that Applewhite Reservoir was going to be, and you see, you look towards downtown, and as far back as there was mammoths walking downtown, there was people on the rivers associated to our city. You know, the but the thing is, is that what's happened is we're challenging science now. We're challenging anthropologists, historians, scholars uh, to th rethink, you know, how they uh, how they talk about our people. Because e even the words hunters and gatherers, and I told the group of scholars, you know, the other day, um, you got to stop using and describing our people as hunters and gatherers. Remember that hunters and gatherers is just a modern way of saying savages. You, hunters and gatherers was a term that was coined to describe a group of people that didn't have laws or customs or traditions. 
And if you look at our, our records, the only historical records that are associated to our people in San Antonio or, or Northeastern Mexico and San Antonio, um, they'll talk about the level of the Spaniards, the Spaniard, the Spanish entradas, what they refer to as the entradas. They'll talk about the sophistication of our agriculture and the use of the land. The reason it became uh, unsophisticated in some scientists' eyes was because people didn't understand it. But there's been an intentional, I believe, since the early 1900s, an intentional um, downplaying of the contributions of our people here historically. Tejanos will say the same thing yeah. about their ranching methods. Well, yeah, and so we're trying to change that because you you got to stop marginalizing our people. Even to this day, when they talk about Coahuitecan people, because it was the Coahuitecan region was the largest in all of Texas, occupied by uh, bands and clans of people that were uh, linked together linguistically. And even to this day, academia will tell will, will tr begin to break those those people up and regroup them. And my, my thought, to my, what I'm telling them is that's just another attempt to marginalize an already marginalized people. So we, that's the kind of work that we have to stop doing and we have to stop from, you know, perpetuating that. Um, we, you know, our people, there was a belief that, um, that was a belief that it was, that there was by, um, um, Uh, biological and cultural extinction that was generated in the 1920s of our people. And it that was, they had all died right. out. Mm -hmm. And their culture has died, their people have died, right? In the 1970s, another group of scholars came in and said, no, we believe that there's, uh, that it's um, cultural and biological survival is how we should describe these people. Right? So that happened in 1970. So recent. Yeah. And to this day, people are still being taught the old school. And we have scholars talk to me and others like me. Uh, they'll be like, what? Oh, yeah. You know, but it's out there. And the great um, Alston Toms, yeah. who we lost yes. uh, during the pandemic, um, who we owe so much yeah, to. Yeah, we do. Uh, talk do. a little bit about him as well, we close out. He was our biggest ally. I mean, he was a uh, A&M. Yeah, at A&M College Station. And um, Austin Toms was one of those that argued with us in the, in the 90s, you know, because of the Applewhite Reservoir. We butted heads. Him and our elders butted heads. Um, and th there was, uh, and we were able to build a friendship with him. And um, over time, he saw saw um saw the contributions that he could make to new science to new discoveries in his field and in regards to our people and the history of our people the whole idea of biological and cultural survival not extinction isolated him from the rest of his colleagues yes But he and, was a very strong academic and a very strong man. Yes, he was. And um, he was one of my early sources, and I'll um, always be grateful to him. And I'll always be grateful to you for introducing me to um, Apple White and what it looks like now and the beautiful expanse it is along the Medina River. Yeah. There's no place like it. And 
um, it's a treasure. It's a treasure. We're fortunate to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for the invitation.